electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And welcome, everybody, to CNBC's continued coverage of the markets and turmoil, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Just a reminder, we continue to social distance here at work, trying to flatten that curve. Welcome, everybody. As Tyler elegantly says, as he always does, what a week it was. And I think everybody might agree, TGIF, from a markets perspective, was not so, thank goodness, because the Dow falling again. All in all, the week we were up about 13% on the Dow, the best week since 1938. But let's be clear, that is cold comfort Given what we have seen, we are still down thousands of points from our high just one month ago. The Dow losing 915 points today. The benchmark 10-year Treasury note ended kind of where it began, at about 0.7%. When you throw a couple trillion dollars like the Fed is at the bond market, maybe you're going to see a move, maybe not. At least it's stabilized. We'll talk more about that in a moment. What did not stabilize today Oil, it continues to fall. It is down 5% in the cash session. It is moving around after hours. Oil stocks falling across the board as well today. The average oil stock in the United States is now down 50% this year. And there's a lot more that are down even more than that. All right, welcome, everybody. We've got a big show for you tonight. And Options Action will be on tonight at 5.30 as well. Very pleased to join in our group who has just been resilient through this, dealing with a lot, and that is Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, and we're pleased to also welcome from Crossmark Global Investors, Victoria Fernandez, who is in Houston. We're going to get to all the traders in just one moment, but we have got some breaking news on General Motors, really for the second day in a row, but this is different. Phil LeBeau, what is Trump ordering GM to do? Uh, it's the Defense Production Act that he has signed, and it's not one across the board for all industry. It is specific to General Motors and the manufacturing of ventilators. And after signing this or announcing this, or basically putting it into effect, the White House then issued a statement from the president, and he took full aim at General Motors. Remember, he, t he tweeted at Mary Barra earlier in the day saying that they were dragging their heels. He writes, our negotiations with GM regarding its ability to supply ventilators have been productive, but our fight against the virus is too urgent to allow the give and take of the contracting process to continue to run its normal course. GM was wasting time. We've talked with a number of people at General Motors about how this whole process shook out, and we'll talk about that in a bit, Brian. But here is what General Motors and Ventec have signed an agreement to do today. Now, again, they had not signed one with FEMA or the national or the federal government, but they have reached an agreement to essentially set up a new manufacturing facility at GM's engine plant in Kokomo, Indiana. This will be jointly run between Ventec and GM, and there will be 1,000 UAW workers down in Kokomo who have said, sure, pay me, I'll go in, I'll help build these, and the production will start in 7 to 14 days. After the DPA was signed today, GM released a statement saying Ventec, GM, and our supply base have been working around the clock for over a week to meet this urgent need. Our commitment to build Ventec's high-quality critical care ventilator, the VOCSN, has never wavered. GM is also going to be building surgical masks 
at its plant in Warren, Michigan. But this is all about the DPA and the president's anger at General Motors, specifically at General Motors when it comes to the manufacturing of ventilators. Brian, I mentioned this negotiation, this contract process. It's my understanding that after the New York Times article came out, where they said that they, they thought there was a deal in place, and I mean they, the Trump administration, but apparently the negotiation between FEMA and Ventec as they were working on this, they hit some snags, potentially over price. The president then this, uh, this morning came out and just blasted GM, blasted CEO Mary Barra, and blamed them for that failed negotiation. Well, even after GM said today, we're going to start building these in Kokomo, wasn't enough for the president. So he signed the Defense Production Act, Interesting whether or not this will change things for GM, force them to add even more production of ventilators. And that's a, st a totally separate question in terms of what the process they would have to go through. I got so many questions, Phil, in so little time here. I'll, I'll whittle it down to two. Uh, number one is, is it likely that the president is going to do this with other auto manufacturers in America, Fiat Chrysler, even the foreign-owned ones, Mercedes, Honda, sure. Toyota, where they make cars in the United States. And number two, how can you go from making an engine block or a chassis or suspension to a ventilator? Do we know if that's even possible in a short period of time? I'll take the second question first, and then I'll answer the, the, the first question you had. On the second question, this facility in Kokomo, Indiana, where General Motors builds engines, it's not like they're going in and they're taking the engine line and they're saying, well, strip this out. What they are doing is they're taking the space that is in that facility and they're essentially making a new manufacturing line for the manufacturing of ventilators. And it's a clean room process. So this is not like you just walk into some empty warehouse and say, yeah, just set up that machine over there. You've got to go through a number of steps, which General Motors and Ventec will be doing. You've got to meet FDA requirements, not only in terms of the final product, but also the training that the workers will have to go through. So it's, it's fairly complex. It's not as simple as just flipping a switch and it's ready to go. With regard to your first question, could we see the president sign a DPA saying Ford has to do this, Fiat Chrysler has to do this, BMW at its plant down in Spartanburg has to do this. At this point, it looks like the president has only signed this uh, Defense Production Act requirement specifically for General Motors. Now, whether or not we see that expand, Brian, remains to be seen. If we need as many ventilators yeah. as we do in this country, wouldn't be surprising if he signs it for other manufacturers and says, look, you've got to do more in, in terms of cranking these out. By the way, Ford has already said that it's going to be working on increasing ventilator production with uh, GE Healthcare. So it's not as though other automakers and other manufacturers aren't doing anything. Yeah, Phil LeBeau, some big breaking news there on GM and obviously a personal issue the president has with GM CEO Mary Barra. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Excellent work all week this week as well, buddy. Be well, be safe, have a good weekend. All right, let's get now to our all-star trading group. And Guy Adami, you're, you're seeing the headlines. Best week for the Dow since 1938. I think that's a ridiculous comment. It's true. I get it. I don't like it. Because let's, let's be clear, the all-clear has not yet sounded, I would imagine. Yeah, and you, you had major news organizations, you know, in the digital world uh, with headlines in you know, a new bull market and stuff, which is, you know, somewhat preposterous. I mean, technically they're right, yeah. but it's such so disingenuous. It doesn't really help many people. You just have to look at these weeks sort of in aggregate and say to yourself, all right, and last Friday we talked about this, Brian. You know, we got through another week. Let's see where we are now. In my world, the good news, and I understand 
that bond volatility is still here, but it seems to be compressing just a bit. That's an encouraging sign, right? And as I mentioned yesterday, the fact that there seems to be a lack of indiscriminate selling in the market, I think is also a good sign. I think we're through that phase. What concerned me all week, and we talked about it all week, was the fact that even with the market having a strong move to the upside today notwithstanding, the volatility index is measured by the VIX basically closed where we ended last week-ish, around 65 yeah. or thereabouts, which is it's, it's somewhat disconcerting. It's a word that I've used this week, and it's a word I'll use right now. Yeah, and either the market is going to get more volatile, or maybe there's some hedge fund out there floating some positions we're not sure of. Tim Seymour, we're trying to get everything in in limited time. What's the thing we should be talking about more but aren't? I think we should be talking about positioning, Brian. I mean, if you think about uh, the deleveraging that's gone on in the market, if you think about equity sentiment, if you think about uh, how underweight people are on, a, on an equity long-term basis, uh, if you think about the, the, the mass liquidation, liquidation in bond funds, um, it, it tells me that we obviously are at mass pessimism. You know, that may be fair, um, but if you think about the market and the wall of worry and historically even during different times during the bull market, uh, these kind of dynamics were actually when the market was expected to go down. In fact, the expectation here today is that we were supposed to pull back today and that we're probably going to have a double bottom and a test. Um, I'm not so sure that we have to have that. And if you think about the rebalance schedule for the end of the first quarter, it's also a powerful dynamic here. We're probably, I was listening to JP Morgan did a great call on this today. Uh, they suggest we're about only 40% of the way through uh, that rebalancing and that the next two to three days, you could have 65% of it rebalancing, meaning people will have to get higher at their equity benchmarks. I think that pessimism in the market uh, weighted along with this unprecedented $2 trillion stimulus that's come before the recession has hit, which I think is actually excessive beyond what is needed right now, but uh, that may be unpopular. Um, I think this is a very important dynamic for the market. That's the most important thing to me. Market factors right now are the most important. Okay, BK, we've got the $2 trillion relief bill signed by the president. The Fed has announced TARP, TALF, ESF, all the different acronyms, then some, the biggest Fed action in the history of the world. What's the next most important thing we've got to pay attention to? Uh, you know what, Sully? I think it's exactly what we started the show with, with this GM production. I mean, so if you think about what's the most important thing, both just for humanity and for the economy and the market, it's getting people healthy. And so you've now got GM building ventilators. That's going to be extremely helpful, except the president has told us by April 12th, which is Easter, we're all going to be back to work. Well, Phil just told us that it's going to take 14 days to get these lines up, these uh, lines up. So, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but 14 days from now gets me pretty close to Easter. Why would we need ventilators 14 days from now if everybody's going to be back to work and everything's going to be uh, OK? Um, so I color me skeptical on that. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing to pay attention to. How quickly can America get healthy and then how quickly and safely can America get back to work? You know, and Victoria, listen, I mean, it's it's a hard line to walk because on financial television, we're talking about markets and economies and investments as a lot of people are suffering. We understand all of that. But I think it is important to BK's point, right, that even as a fund manager, number one, for health and humanity, we want things to get better sooner. 
But let's be clear, the markets are tied to this also, are they not? If we get good news on this flattening of the curve, the market could react. Well, the market will react on good news. And we saw this week there were some positive things. We had three up days in the equity markets. That was positive. The Fed stepped in. I mean, they bought more assets in seven days than they did in seven months of QE2 trying to stabilize the markets, especially the credit market. So there were some positives. And we actually saw some investors give inflows to us going into our option strategy. I mean, we have options action coming up next after this, how you use options and this volatility. We saw money flowing into some of our fixed income products. But I think people have to be cautious because it's what you said. There are so many uncertainties going on. We don't expect a V-shaped recovery. We expect more of kind of a W-shaped recovery. We do think we'll head back down lower towards the bottoms. I don't know if it'll be a double bottom per se, as Tim mentioned, but I think we'll have some of that volatility. You have to when you've got energy and oil markets the way that they are, when we still have so much uncertainty around COVID-19. And look, for us as longer-term investors, the fundamentals is what we always like to watch. And right now, you can't rely on the economic fundamental numbers that are coming out. They're just too skewed with what we're going through right now. Yeah, they really are. Okay, I want the whole crew to stick around. I want to go to a guest and then come back and get everybody's comments more in the markets. Uh, Let's welcome in now of Jeffries, macro strategist David Zerbos. David, it's a pleasure to to talk to you again on CNBC. I wish it was under better circumstances. Um, You put out a really interesting note a couple of days ago. We're throwing around all these three-letter words and acronyms, CLO, CDO, CDS, that we really haven't talked about in 12 years. With the Fed action and with what we saw with the relief bill, are we seeing the credit markets react positively? Well, yeah, yeah, Sully. I think, um, well, it's great to be back and talking with you on uh, unfortunate circumstances, but there's certainly a lot to talk about. I think instead of getting caught up in all of these acronyms, it's probably easier to just explain to the, to the viewers, that the top end of the credit structure, the AAA stuff and the IT stuff, the Fed is able to come in and lend against that pretty easily with its mandate. As you get into high yield and you get into CLOs and you get into uh, private label CMBS and uh, non-agency RMBS, these are places that are really, really struggling. And I mean really struggling. Uh, you know, the, even the top end of those capital structures and the structure credit are, are seeing some, some extraordinary moves. So I, I think what you have to kind of put in perspective is the Fed can do a lot to fix well-functioning and balance, fix balance sheets that are in a pretty good place. But when it comes to things like the energy patch or what we're seeing in the leisure and hotel business, it's going to be really hard for the Fed to do anything there. This is a place where uh, the balance sheets are pretty levered. The guys have you know a lot of a lot of hair on them frankly and a lot of uh, a lot of vagaries yeah. in how to look at the future so this is not a place where fed policy really helps that much and it really comes back to what your guests were saying earlier about clarity on when people can get back to work and that's going to be the, the the sort of crux point for the market if you will that's where we're going to see defaults we're going to see ugly stories we're going to see lots of layoffs we're going to see lots of problems um, but what the Fed has done in the IG market and in the investment grade market, phenomenal. And when we saw a great reaction to that this week. I, I will say, though, I am a little disappointed that we're still sitting right around 2,500 in the S&P when we've basically done QE2 in almost a week. Uh, it's, it's kind of depressing, honestly. I, I would have thought better. And the fact that we haven't uh, gives me a little more pause for caution yeah. on the idea that we've got to go well, down y- a little bit. You know, 
you probably have your own data, David, but I saw some data, and I'll get the traders to comment on this when the interview wraps, too, which is EPFR put out $235 billion was put into money market funds in the last week. It was $135 yeah. billion put in, I think it was, the week before that. We're talking about four to $500 billion effectively going into cash in the last two to three weeks. Is that the wrong, that's bullish, right? Is that the wrong move or is that ultimately well, bullish? I don't think that, I don't think that's the wrong. I mean, a lot of people are basically liquidating risk assets and they need to go somewhere. So where are they going to go? They're going, going to go into the, into the safest place they can go, which is the money funds. And so I think you're seeing people park it there and just get liquid, get cash and get ready for whatever they're going to do next. And that may be launch into some of these riskier places once they can get some clarity. So I don't, I, you know, I, I, I like the idea that we saw massive equity outflows from retail. That's a positive sign. That's usually means we're closer to a bottom. Uh, I, I like the idea that a lot of people have gone to cash again, usually closer to a bottom. I, I do worry, and, and this, I don't want to get too technical. I do worry a little bit about the risk parity strategies. There was a, a big article this week about how China cut its allocation to that. And you remember we had that period where both stocks and bonds were going down at the same time uh, last yep. week. And and that was really – this is really a strategy that has trillions uh, allocated to it. It's sort of people levering up fixed income as a hedge to long-risk assets. And if you have rates at zero or 20 basis points for two-year notes and 40 basis points for five-year notes, there's no way to yeah. do risk parity anymore. So that money needs to leave and find a new home. So I, I think we've got a lot of moving parts. But, uh, you know, I'll sum up, you know, because I know you're, sure you're always pressed for time. The credit story is really a messy one. We've got the top end in the investment-grade world really well taken care of. We've got some people without respirators uh, in the more exotic and higher leverage spaces in the credit markets, and they're not going to get them anytime soon. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of defaults, according to S&P, Moody's, and Fitch. David Zerbos, always appreciate your views as well. Best to you and your family over the weekend. We'll talk to you soon here on CNBC. Thank you very much. Tim, I heard you saying bullish. I mean, I guess, you know, unless that money needs to be used for something else, that money will likely come back into the equity markets. The, the panicky nature of the response here, and it's been appropriate because coming into this, part of where we are is where we came from. I think about uh, how grossed up uh, both the professional community and, and arguably even the margin uh, that has been extended to retail investors. And, and that's part of the impact of the massive deleveraging we had. That's why we went down 35% peak to trough uh, almost overnight. Uh, and, and we all know the velocity. We all know what that meant. But uh, when I look at where we are now, and one of the reasons why we've had this snapback rally, especially in investment grade credit, and I've been talking about credit all week. Um, first of all, that is bullish. Uh, and, and, and it doesn't mean that the high yield space won't get sloppy and doesn't remain sloppy. But, but I do think that you know, we've gotten to a place where relative to itself, relative to other periods in history, relative to the financial crisis, um, you know, which happened at a much slower pace, um, I think, you know, the way the markets have reacted and positioning is very important. People think there's going to be another March 2009 after November 2008. And I'm not so sure we're going to get that. I'm not telling you the world is in a scary, scary place in financial markets. We know it is health wise. Uh, but I think right now, EPS downgrades of the S&P don't really matter. Um, what matters is liquidity. What matters is positioning. And, and then we will start to sort through 3Q and 4Q when the time comes. Victoria Fernandez, do you have clients that are still calling you and saying, I want to sell into this rally? And if so, what are you telling them? We do have some clients that are wanting to sell, but we keep telling them, look, the last thing we want them to do is to try to 
uh, time the market. That never turns out well for investors if you look historically. We're really encouraging them if they want to up their cash position just a little bit, we're fine with that. But try to stay invested and actually use some of these volatile moments that we're seeing in the markets to add to names in our portfolios. That's what we're doing on both the fixed income and the equity side. But I do want to say that on the fixed income side, yes, things are a little bit better. Spreads are not widening out like we saw at the end of last week and the beginning of this week. But the liquidity there is still tight. There's still issues going out there and trying to buy or sell bonds in the open market. So we need to be cautious there in that arena. All right, Victoria Fernandez, Tim Seymour, Guy Dami, and BK. Guys, I look forward to the day. We just have a normal roundtable. That will happen soon, I promise you. It, it, it is going to happen, guys. Appreciate everything. Thank you very much. All right, coming up after the break here, what corporate insiders have been buying their own stock? They could be a good sign of maybe a bullish view. We'll tell you this much. We've got a list of the top five companies where the insiders are buying, and the number one buyer is a big name you know who hasn't bought since his own IPO. We're back with the names right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to CNBC and Fast Money. What corporate insiders are buying their own stock? We're going to let you know. Every week, we're going to try to do a segment from insiderscore.com, appreciate their data, to show you what insiders are doing the buying. And the biggest buyer of his own stock was Michael Dell. According to insiderscore.com, Michael Dell not only buying a ton of his own stock, but also it's his first open market purchase since the, the I, of course, he had two IPOs, since the second IPO in the fourth quarter of 2018. You also had strong insider buying at Oracle. Alliance Data, ADS, in fact, six insiders there did buying. CIT Group and Equity Commonwealth. On all, there was a Wall Street Journal story, 2,800 insiders bought their own stock for about $1.2 billion in the past week. But according to Insider Score, it was Dell, Oracle, ADS, CIT, and Equity Commonwealth, whose insiders stepped up and bought the most of their own stock. Guy Adami. Is this something that you would look to? I mean, a sell program can be automatic. Do you look at corporate insider buying as, as a kind of a sign? 100%. We talked about this weeks ago when we had, we had a discussion about what are you looking for to see some semblance of normalcy and potentially a bottom. And that's one of the things we mentioned, Brian. And what we have to do is go back to February. I want to say it's February 8th, 2016, but I'm probably off by a couple of days. But it was that day, if you recall, the S&P bottomed out around 1810. But it was also on that day that Jamie Dimon announced he was buying back whatever amount of stock for himself. I think J.P. Morgan was trading around 53 or so at the time. So I absolutely think that's an encouraging sign. It's anecdotal, but it's not a bad thing for sure. BK, any of those names stick out to you? If Michael Dell is stepping in and buying a bunch of his own stock, that might say something. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I agree with Guy. This this is actually put put this in the win column for the markets. Um, you know, Michael Dell coming in. If you look at the, how he's played kind of the market game over the last couple of years, he's done it phenomenally well uh, by taking his coming private, taking it public, going back and forth. So, you know, that to me sticks out as, all right, we've got one thing that's telling me there's some yeah. confidence among CEOs. I'd like to see a lot more, but this is a good start. All right, dude, you're getting a Dell. BK, thank you very much. All right, coming up <laughs> after the break, our gang is with us with your playbook for next week. Stick around. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. I want to thank the All-Stars guy, Tim, BK, and Victoria Fernandez. Thank you all, guys. We'll see you next week. Options Action is coming up next right here on CNBC. We'll see you back after this break. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.